Hi all, welcome to Addiction to Recovery. Our purpose and passion is to bring you not only the science of addiction, but also the patient perspective and the relationship between the two. Okay, well, here we are. First episode. Hi, Heather. Hi. <laughs> so I am Dr. Heather Bell. It's the only time you can call me doctor. And I'm Josh Solom. I'm a person in recovery. Yeah. So we kind of came up with this podcast idea. I don't know. You had this idea a long time before I did, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've wanted to do a podcast since I got out of treatment in 2020. I just felt like it was something that was needed for people to hear, you know, the patient side um, to get information and to even for the people that aren't in addiction to learn a little bit more about what the person in, in active addiction goes through. So why podcasts? Podcast is a new thing. You know, it's <laughs> like you can listen anywhere. You can do it. And anybody has access to it. And, you know, and there's there's a lot of platforms out there for people to people to catch this. I think it's pretty cool. I also think it's, I mean, part of it, I think, is, you know, your love of gabbing and teaching and coaching. and. Well, yeah, I mean, I was a, <laughs> I mean, I went to college to be a teacher and, and a, and a hockey coach, and I got to all those things. Um, you know, I was a teacher and a hockey coach for 10 years. And, uh, you know, I just got uh, hurt one day and, and got prescribed some Oxycontin, and, and the rest is history. You know, went from Oxycontin to um, losing everything in my life and uh, then going directly to meth because uh, I found that Oxycontin was hard to find on the streets. I had been getting it from my doctor the whole time, and so... I went on about a seven minute or seven, seven, seven minute. year. If seven, only it was only, it was seven, only seven minutes. <laughs> a seven year meth bender, and uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I learned a lot. I think it's kind of ironic, actually, and I know your story, obviously, but I think it's ironic that hearing it that way, again, I know the story, but hearing it that way kind of parallels exactly what my career into addiction looked like. You know, being just this rural hick family doc in the middle of nowhere to doing addiction medicine just kind of evolved almost in the same way. You know, the opioid prescribing, monitoring that, the whole Purdue Pharma, which you are definitely the classic patient victim of the Sackler family. We can say that on here because, you know. Oh, can. I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> we, can, we can, you know, throw them out of the bus as much as we want. But yeah, no, so I did that, and then it was like, oh, crap, when you start uh, watching prescribing and, you know, obviously giving pain meds to those who need it, but start that, you start recognizing that people are actually addicted to these medications. Well, I think it's, you know, it's something that needs to be talked about because there were so many people that were affected by this. I mean, think about the people, the, the women that went through uh, a pregnancy and had to have a C-section and were prescribed Oxycontin. And they had the addiction, you know, gene. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden they lost everything. You know, a lot of them lost their lives. Right. And so it was innocent people that got caught into this. And, you know, I'm not going to blame everything about my past on Purdue Pharma or the Sackler family. You know, I had the choice, um, you know, going forward to ask for help. And I didn't many times. And I had the choice to, you know, turn and go the other direction. And I didn't. But the reality is, is that the reality so many is, I'm going to interrupt you. Okay. You said choice several times, and we're, we'll talk about that probably a million times throughout this podcast because I think 
from my perspective, I'm probably even more anti the word choice than even people who use, because um, I don't think it's a choice. But I mean, I can see what you're saying that there were places you probably could have gone a different route. But again, the brain changes. Well, and I think I was saying that based on you know more of the more of the innocent, the real innocent people that got caught in the oxycotton and died very quickly because it was so addictive. I mean, it, it just grabbed people and it changed them. I mean, you think about a mother who just had birth that's willing to give up the child mm -hmm. because they're so addicted to that medicine. And then they end up going to heroin and pretty soon they're dead. I mean, a lot of that happened in the early two thousands. Right. I mean, innocent people, you know, like, you know, watch the, watch the show dope sick and you know, the shows the, we're la I'm laughing because I've been told to watch the show a hundred times, but I lived it. She thinks she lived it, but I think uh, <laughs> there's more to it than she thinks. But, you know, it highlights the, the people that were injured, you know, working in the mines. You know, there was a big, very true, big area in West Virginia. Um, Southern where the, Ohio. Yeah. And then that's where the, that's where the, they call it ground zero for this, this thing happened. And those are the people that really suffered from it because nobody knew, nobody knew the dangers of it. Right. And they were they were told the opposite. They were told that it was safe. They were told that it was non-addictive. So what I flat out lie. So I've seen episode you know one and two actually. So the thing I love the best about those two episodes is is really that exactly what you just said is what they were told. It was you know the whole drug companies touting all of this, and that's kind of what I spent the first I don't know year and a half of any kind of my addiction work, you know, a couple of years into my whole career looking at is just on that prescribing and not wanting to shift the blame to all the doctors who were told these things. I was lucky. I was like three years too young to have been sucked into that. I got to go through residency where we were a little bit more cautious on an opioid thing. So I got lucky, you know, people three years ahead of me are, were kind of over prescribers for a while, but yeah. So then anyway, kind of transitioned into doing, you know, just the meds, kind of the Suboxones and sorry, buprenorphine. We're not supposed to say name brand medications, by the way. Um, <laughs> and going from there and then just really kind of not falling in love with the addiction world. That seems like a bizarre statement, but helping those patients that were victims of this horrible thing. Well, and it's not just the people that went through the opioid, opioid the, the, the people that got caught into the, the Oxycontin thing. I mean, there's people all over that got, I mean, they've, they've grew up in addiction. You know, they were, they never had a chance. You know, of all the treatments I've been to, I've met so many people that didn't even know a world outside of addiction. It's almost like they never had a chance right. to, to turn their lives around. And those are the people also that you fight for. Exactly. You know, that they didn't have to like go through that same stages of the, the Sackler family um, problem with Purdue Pharma, there's people that got caught up in this real early, like when they're teens. Well, you know, the, the whole adverse childhood experiences thing and the childhood trauma and the life of that, like you said, living and growing up in it. We'll have an episode on that because that's like one of my soapbox topics is trauma. So there's, there's a gamut of patients who we care for. Um, I always... Not, when I worked in, so I ended up doing a year in corrections, of course, at some point in there after doing addiction medicine, I decided to go work for the jails for a year. Probably hey, I've my, been in jail a number <laughs> of times. Oh, I've, I've, I might have been in jail more times than you. I just got to get out know. every single day. 
I guess if you count the number of days, you got me beat. But, yeah. um, you know, there's a couple different types of people in jail. And when you sit and you talk to people and you hear their stories and you hear of all the addiction and you hear of, first of all, why they're in there and it just makes me sick and we can get into all of the crime, war on drugs thing. Another episode. Oh my God, the war on drugs, let me tell you. Um, Big mistake. You really do see that a lot of people are being, you know, jailed for being victims of childhood trauma or victims of Purdue Pharma or all these other things when they need help, not to be thrown and locked up in jail where they're probably learning more things they shouldn't want to learn anyway. Well, I think that's a good segue (laughs) to what we did in Atlanta. I think it is kind of what brought this podcast to finally happen from your dreams of 2020 to reality. It wasn't exactly the dream I had, but it was, you know, it's along the lines. We're doing a podcast. I mean, that's, your dream was probably doing this solo and not. No, <laughs> no, no. I, I, I really needed a producer and uh, didn't know anybody. So oh. I just kind of gave up on the idea. Producer, add that to my letters behind my name. No, so totally randomly, if anyone is really into this addiction stuff, I can't, you know, emphasize it enough. The national, now it's called the National Rx and Illicit Drug Summit. First time I spoke at or went to it in 2016 was the National Prescription Drug Summit, and it just kind of gets different gets different names depending on the newest fad out there. But anyway, we uh, did a talk a couple, well, a month ago, a month and a half ago, gosh. Early April. Early April on kind of recidivism. I said the word for you. Yeah, yeah, recidivism. The, recidivism. Um, the revolving door cycle in the jails with people using substances end up in jail and then getting out, either overdosing and dying when they get out or going right back into it. And it was really cool because it was a really last-minute switch, but you got to present on this huge stage. I did, and then it was, you know, I've I've been presenting now over the last year and a half, you know, going to different treatment centers and talking, telling my story and stuff like that. Um, But that's me talking to other peers that, that have gone through it. This was my opportunity to speak in front of, a very different group of people. You can go into who was there. Yeah, so this this summit is huge. There's different tracks. So there's, you know, providers, so physicians, physicians and assistants, nurses, social workers, there's educators there, there's law enforcement there. Pretty much anybody in society that has anything to do with the addiction world. And very few people like me. There's <laughs> <laughs> that, that very few people um, that I was used to being talking or talking to, <laughs> but it was very few people like me. I'm glad you stopped there because yeah. we could have come up with a different few things. But um, so you got to give the perspective of the person in the jail. So I'm giving this talk on you know here's a program to try to get MOUD so medications for opioid use disorder treatment into county jails. And I can talk about all the barriers in county jails and all the things I have faced in doing this because I have been doing that, trying to get treatment in jails. There's a lot of barriers. Oh, my gosh. Jails are one of the hardest places to get treatment and to get any kind of buy-in and empathy and all the things. But I think the talk got made way better because you've actually been on the opposite side. Like I can get up there and preach and say, here's a barrier for a patient, but I don't really actually know what that looks like. No, and I don't think many of those people in in the audience really had that perspective or have been given that perspective before. And to see somebody, I think it was probably kind of shocking for them to be like, wow, this is very different than what we're used to seeing. Um, Somebody that's actually been in the jails, somebody that's lived it. And maybe some of those barriers weren't directly at me, but 
I, I'm an observer. You know, I sit around. <laughs> I, when you're in jail, you don't have anything else to do. So I sat around and I would observe. You know, steal the People magazine crossword puzzles. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, do crossword puzzles. But you know, I could sit and I, you know, and I was sober. You know, I, I, you know, it was forced over time, but I was at least kind of clear-headed. And so I was able to sit and watch how people were treated. You know, mm-hmm. how different type. I mean, I was in a low, low security area because I had no violent crimes or anything like that. Um, so it was a, quite a few people. It was up to 60 people in my block. And it was very, very similar people, you know, going, you know, very small drug crimes, um, maybe theft, stuff like that. But everybody had differences to them, you know, whether they were, uh, you know, addicted to meth or addicted to um, heroin or an alcoholic that was in there on DUI charges. But the common thing was nobody got any help. I mean, huh. there was nobody coming in to say, hey, we want to, you know, offer services for anybody that wants help to stop using. It just wasn't there. No, no. And I've, I mean, having been in the medical side of sitting in a jail and just, I mean, it's hard. You know, it's it's hard. We're, we'll have conversations about jail on this podcast probably a thousand times. So. Well, we keep know. coming up with ideas for podcasts as we go. I kind of like should this. Be we should be writing be it down. <laughs> oh my gosh, jinx. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, at that, that talk though, I think the first person who stood up to ask a question at the end, and you have 15 minutes for Q&A, and I think we had an hour worth of questions. Luckily, yeah. there wasn't a talk after ours. But a lot of it was overwhelming support of your side. And I think, like you mentioned, bringing that perspective to this group of people. I mean, even I feel like an outsider presenting at that that place because I am not a researcher. I don't work for some big old university. I just do the work. And and so the reception to having both sides was overwhelming. And now we've done a couple different talks with that. And we've had nothing but, you know, a lot of, you know, it, good reception on kind of bringing both sides. I think that's that's huge, which kind of segues for me into to kind of mentioning something I think has been lacking in addiction treatment, and I've only been doing addiction medicine for, gosh, almost seven years, dang, um, is the whole peer support, peer recovery support, which is just now coming to be. So why don't you talk about that? Because I think that's huge, like okay. what you do. Yeah, well, I am I am a certified peer recovery specialist. Um, what that means is that if somebody is in, well, I mean, it could be very different situations, but in the situation that I'm doing right now, I have had people that were either referred to me or reached out to me because I had posted on Facebook that I was doing this new peer recovery thing. And uh, basically, they are in early recovery, and I walk alongside of them. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling them what to do. You mean you're uh, not giving them assignments? No. It's like a sponsor. I think most people are, are probably confused as to why this is different than a sponsor. And I, it's hard to explain, but I think, yeah, you walk alongside them and... There's no times where I'm saying, okay, what, you know, I need you to do your, your, you know, resentments, write down all your resentments. And then, you know, it's none of that, you know, we just talk. And like, if, if there's any needs, like, you know, if a client needs help accessing employment or uh, possible employment opportunities, um, living, you know, opportunities, assistance from the county, anything, you know, like I can help them go through these things. Why? Because I've done them. Right. You know, and that's the thing about peer recovery is that you get matched up with somebody and they end up 
you know, helping you through the same path that they went through. Right. And that's that whole taking somebody that's, that's had some success in recovery and matching them with somebody that really wants it. Right. And that's the thing. You know, it's almost, you know, we, there's a lot of different treatments as providers, you know, go to inpatient treatment, go to AA meetings, go to this, get a sponsor, do all these things. And I think there's a place for everything in, I think there's no two patients that I've ever seen that are even the same, but I think this is one of those things I think everyone could benefit from. You know, it's almost like going to a breast cancer support group. Some people are further along and they can get hope in that person. Um, but it's different than like going to an AA meeting. Some, I mean, that's kind of the premise of that is so they can kind of get that support from somebody else at the meeting. But I think this is another step better because you, you can do normal day-to-day things. You can help them go get those things they might need, like you said. And having the doctor title or whatever, patients sometimes aren't going to necessarily want to disappoint you or they're not going to necessarily tell you things or they might not think you understand um, you know, there are people who are in recovery that do the work I do. I'm not. Um, so sometimes it's a little bit harder for a patient to kind of be like, well, you must, you can't possibly get it. So having that peer support as part of the team, I think it's just huge. Well, and I don't ever want to like downplay the role of other treatment possibilities, you know, whether it's going into inpatient or, or AA, getting a sponsor. If it works for you, I'm all mm-hmm. for it. You know, that whatever works for you. I don't think that's, this is why I've always, I never knew of peer recovery that that was never something that I knew about. I know that now people had been, have been working on this for a long time, but it's something that I always thought of as something that was missing. Mm-hmm. You know, the personal component, there's too many situations where you have somebody, I mean, LADCs are great. They're great people. A lot of them are in recovery but they have to go through so much paperwork and they have to do all these checklists and it becomes a real difficult thing for them to become personally relatable. Right. And, and that's what, that's what we, I feel like I'm needed. I mm-hmm. didn't have that. You know, thankfully I had people in my family that were loving and never stopped loving me. But you know, like with my clients, I, I tell them straight out, if, if you relapse and this is not a green light to relapse, <laughs> But if you do, I am not here to judge you. I'm not here to, to yell at you. I'm here to help you back if you want it. Right. And, you know, and that's the thing is that we, as, as we're never going to give up. That's the thing when I went through the training, it was like, you don't just like say, oh, you used, you're done. Um, that's one, one thing they know so that they can uh, feel comfortable. And right. they know that I've relapsed so many times. You know, I mean, I, I can't even count. It's been a minute, though, let's be it real. Has, it has. <laughs> but I, I can't even count how many times I wanted to stop and stay stopped, but I just went back, you know, and I don't know why I did. And that's the thing is that I do know right. why they did. All right. And we'll get into all these kind of things. The nuances of what you do. We can do a whole episode on that, too, because I think it's important Um you know, the whole bringing people back and all of that. But let's end until next week. Oh, that went fast. It did go fast. Wow. Uh, you know, I, the whole hour thing, people don't typically have that long a commute. So, you know. We'll, <laughs> well, well, unless you live in northern Minnesota and you're going to hockey games every weekend. Well, that's true, too. We'll try to vary the length of these yeah. things, and we'll try to do them weekly. Who knows? If we have a lot of response, that'd be great. 
with that, we do have an email address if people want to reach out and give recommendations on topics or you want to hear more things, have questions for Josh or myself, probably more for him than me. Um, we will bring you also in this podcast series, we'll bring you some science. We'll talk about the neurobiology, what makes addiction actually a disease, and then what that looks like also from Josh's perspective outside of the science. And we'll, we'll go through all the hot topics in addiction. Um, and we're going to have a lot of interview people. Well, a lot of interview people. We're going to interview a lot of people. There you go. There you go. You got it. And, you know, so that's going to be f- super cool. So if anybody has any thoughts, any of that, please don't hesitate. You can email us at addiction to it's the number two recovery podcast at gmail.com did you know that i didn't know that <laughs> i was going to remind you to say the number two the number two so addiction to recovery podcast at gmail.com all right we didn't really get into family stuff we can get into that another time yeah, we'll do that you know, we got plenty of time <laughs> all right thanks everybody thank you have a good day